Our episodes deal with serious and often distressing incidents and may not be suitable for children. If you struggle with addiction, feel depressed or have suicidal thoughts and you need support, please contact your local crisis centre or reach out to a friend to ask for help. In July of 1973, Graham Parsons' life would take a deadly turn when his Topanga Canyon home would burn down after the careless toss of a cigarette. The country singer and his wife Gretchen would escape the smoky inferno with just the clothes on their back, along with his guitar and prized Jaguar. The fire proved to be the last straw in his rocky relationship and would mark an abrupt end to his short-lived marriage. His life in tatters, Graham would move in with his close friend, Phil Kaufman. On the weekend, he would hang out in Joshua Tree along with his ex-girlfriend, Margaret Fisher, to chase the desert night searching for UFOs and party. On September the 17th, Graham would drive his Jag to the desert one last time to meet up with friends at the Joshua Tree Inn and check into room number eight. He spent the next 48 hours in an alcohol and drug-fueled haze and on the evening of September the 18th, his lifeless body was discovered in a lonely motel room. And on September the 19th, he was declared dead on arrival at the local Yucca Valley Hospital. However, his chilling story doesn't end there. On the morning of September the 21st, tourists visiting the Joshua Tree National Park would stumble across a burning coffin. Inside, they would find the charred remains of the dead country star. Join us on a supernatural journey as we tour the musical history of Graham Parsons, explore the mystical facts, and investigate the mysterious death of one of country music's most charismatic singers. This is Death by Misadventure. born Ingram Cecil Connor III on November the 5th in 1946 in Winter Haven, Florida, under the zodiac sign of Scorpio. His mum would later give birth to a girl in 1951 and name her Little Avis. Graham's family, a combination of rich white trash and southern gentility, could have easily been the basis for a Tennessee Williams play. The comforts of a wealthy upbringing, coupled with dysfunctional alcoholic parents, produced a man-child. Yes, he was artistically original and creative, but was also hell-bent on self-destruction. His mother, Avis Snively, a southern belle, was the daughter of a citrus magnate who owned a third of the orange groves in Florida. His father, Ingram Cecil Coon Dog Connor, was a World War II flying ace and a charming southern gentleman from a wealthy Tennessee family. However, after the war intervened, it would turn him into a relentless warrior, fueling his taste for alcohol. His father Cecil was the titular boss of the family-owned plant in Waycross, Georgia. The job afforded him a loose schedule, leaving him time to hunt, socialise and drink. The Connor household soon became a social hub for the town, where the drinks flowed 
and rumours of trysts and wife swapping. In 1956, when Graham turned nine, his parents took him into an Elvis Presley concert, where he would score an autograph after the show. He had found his musical calling. Inspired by his new favourite rock star, he immediately took up the guitar and studying piano. However, three years later, tragedy would strike the Connor household when Graham's father committed suicide just two days before Christmas in 1958. Their storyboard life had vanished into thin air, and the family were devastated by his loss. A few months later, Graham's mum, depressed and lonely, would meet a new man, Robert Parsons. A smooth talker and devilishly handsome, Bob was far from a reputable suitor for the recent widow. However, Avis on the rebound fell in love immediately, and she quickly married her new lover. While being a bit of a gold digger, Bob Parson nevertheless had tremendous style. He dressed immaculately, drove a racing green Jaguar, smoked Cuban cigars, and kept an ocelot as a house pet. Bob loved being an instant father to Avis's two kids, and would adopt Graham and little Avis. He also showed support for Graham's growing charisma and natural talent for music. He moved the family to Winterhaven to shield the children from their mother's excessive drinking. Graham, as a teenager, continued to develop his musical interest and would play in local rock and roll cover bands like the Pacers and the Legends. His mom, Big Avis, would give birth to his little sister, Diane. However, her marriage to Bob continued to be rocky and their drinking put an increased strain on the family home life. By the age of 16, Graham would graduate to playing folk music. Inspired by the Kingston Trio and Peter, Paul, and Mary, he talked to one of his mom's friends, Bud Freeman, into managing him. Bud booked Graham into coffee houses and clubs, singing folk songs as a solo act, and it went over well. By this time, Graham was pretty much raising himself. His new folk band, the Vanguards, were well rehearsed, and the members envied Graham's living situation, seemingly independent of oversight, with a great place to practice. However, the darkness creeped in, and he started to take after his folks, drinking booze and taking pills. He began skipping school and failed his junior year of high school. By that time, his parents were forced to finally act responsibly, and they shipped him off to military school in Jacksonville, Florida. While attending school, Graham joined a folk band called the Shilohs. During the summer, they played at the local fair in Myrtle Beach and then headed to New York City for the rest of the summer. They crashed on friends' floors and played local coffee houses. It was 1964, and the New York music scene was on fire. They were auditioned by manager Albert Grossman, who loved them but balked when he found out they were still in high school. Graham returned to military school to complete his senior year and applied to Harvard. He surprisingly was accepted despite his bad behavior in high school, that nearly got him expelled. His music career continued to evolve steadily, but his personal life would soon suffer a shock in early 1965, when his adoptive father, Bob, became involved in a torrid extramarital affair 
pushing his mom even further into a downward spiral. A few months later, Avis would die of sclerosis of the liver on June 5, 1965, the day Graham would graduate from high school. Devastated by the loss of his mother, Graham drove to Greenwich Village following her funeral a few weeks later. He rented an apartment and concentrated on his songwriting and focused on his future. In September, Graham headed to Cambridge to start his freshman year at Harvard. He fit the style well, wealthy, smart, confident. But his desire for a college degree quickly faded. He only wanted to party, play music, and chase his dream of stardom. He put together a band comprised mainly of Berkeley students and called it Graham Parsons and the like. The band played local Cambridge venues, but their success was short-lived due to musical differences. Graham would soon meet Ian Dunlap and John, a talented left-handed guitarist, just like Jimi Hendrix. The three musically clicked and recruited Mickey Gavon to join on drums. The four rehearsed nightly, and John turned Graham onto real country music, like Merle Haggard, teaching him the difference between Nashville and Bakersfield. After Harvard's Christmas break in 1965, Graham and his new band would head to New York City in search of fame and fortune. The band lived in a house purchased through Parsons' large trust fund and kept practicing to craft the band's sound. The only thing left for them to do was to choose a name, and Ian suggested the International Submarine, taken from a little rascal's short, and it stuck. Graham would drop out of Harvard before his first semester was over in 1966. Undaunted by his failure to achieve overnight success with the International Submarine Band, he considered moving the group to Los Angeles. The idea was spurred on by his friend and former childhood actor Brandon DeWild, who promised he could get the band cast in films. In November 1966, Parsons packed his bags and headed out to Laurel Canyon on a scouting trip and would get his first taste of Hollywood nightlife at Ciro's. At the club, he rubbed elbows with movie stars like Peter Fonda and Dennis Hopper, stars of the film Easy Rider, and would meet Ciro's house band, The Birds. The Ciro's scene was the hotbed of LA's counterculture music scene, and Graham's friend Brandon took him to the home of David Crosby. However, Crosby was on tour at the time, but his girlfriend Nancy Ross answered the door. In that moment, a match was struck when Graham locked eyes with the aspiring actress. It was love at first sight for both. But like every great love story, it came with a history of passion and regret. Although Nancy was only 19 when she met Graham, the young starlet had a history of breaking hearts. But the attraction between the two proved to be irresistible, and Nancy would break it off with David Crosby to move in with Graham. She would prove to be helpful by finding her new boyfriend a booking agent, and Graham would invite his bandmates to leave New York and join him in L.A. to play gigs and pursue a record deal. Once in L.A., 
the international submarine band struggled to find musical success, and Graham started a side project by playing honky-tonks with his friend Bob Buchanan. This pairing proved to be fruitful and pushed Graham to decide to play country music full-time. When he informed the band of his new musical focus, Ian and Mickey opted to leave the band. The split was amicable. However, only days before the official split, Susie Jane Hokum, a would-be record producer from the area, watched the band rehearse. Impressed, she convinced her boyfriend, Lee Hazelwood, owner of LHI Records, to sign Graham Parsons and John Noose to an exclusive contract. The two bandmates decided to put together a new, more countryfied version of the International Submarine Band, using seasoned country session players instead to fill the slots. The new album, Safe at Home, was produced by Susie Jane Hokum and featured Graham's originals, Luxury Liner, Blue Eyes, Strong Boy, and Do You Know How It Feels to Be Lonesome. The album would be finished in December of 1967, but it wouldn't be released until spring of 68. By then, Graham and Nancy gave birth to a daughter named Polly, and he received an offer to join another more successful band, The Birds. In 1968, Graham Parsons had come to the attention of the Birds bassist, Chris Hillman, who was looking for a new band member. In a strange twist of fate, Graham, who had recently stolen David Crosby's girlfriend Nancy, was now being asked to join the Birds after he was fired. Although Parsons was an equal contributor to the band on their sixth album, Sweetheart of the Rodeo, he was not regarded as a full member by the band's record label, Columbia Records. The record was released on August 30th, 1968. It became the first major album recognized as country rock and represented a stylistic move away from psychedelic rock with Graham Parsons' creative input. Graham would later be quoted in an interview about his time with the Birds. Being with the Birds confused me a little. I couldn't find my place. I didn't have enough say-so. I really wasn't one of the birds. I was originally hired because they wanted a keyboard player, but I had experience being a frontman, and that came out immediately. And Roger McGuinn, being a very perceptive fellow, saw that it would help the act, and he started sticking me out front. Graham's relationship with the birds was complicated because he was still under contract to LHI Records, and consequently, Hazelwood contested Parsons' appearance on the Sweetheart of the Radio album and threatened legal action. As a result, McGuinn ended up replacing three of Graham's lead vocals with his own singing on the finished album, a move that still upset the singer as late as 1973, when he told Cameron Crowe in an interview that McGuinn erased it and did the vocals himself and fucked it up. However, Graham Parsons is still featured as lead vocalist on the songs You're Still on My Mind, Life in Prison, and Hickory Wind. 
but fate would step in again and point his musical career in another direction. While on tour in England with the Birds in the summer of 1968, Graham left the band due to his concerns over a planned concert tour of South Africa, and after speaking to Mick Jagger and Keith Richards about the tour and expressed his opposition to the country's apartheid policies. Immediately after leaving the band, Graham would stay at Keith Richards' home, and the two musicians developed a close friendship bonding over country music. Upon his return to L.A., Graham's musical experimentation continued, and he sought out Chris Hillman to form a band. Together, they formed the Flying Burrito Brothers with bassist Chris Etheridge. Their 1969 album, The Gilded Palace of Sin, mixed the country music's Bakerfield sound with strands of soul and psychedelic rock. Although the album was not a commercial success, the band embarked on a cross-country tour via train. Graham indulged in massive quantities of drugs and alcohol during the tour, so his performances were erratic at best, while much of the band's repertoire consisted of honky-tonk and soul standards with few originals. However, destiny would knock at Graham's door one last time, when at Chris Hillman's request he went to hear Emmy Lou Harris sing in a small club in Washington, D.C. They befriended each other, and within a year, he asked her to join him in Los Angeles for another attempt to record his first solo album, and he was signed to Reprise Records. Graham, by now, featured Emmylou as his duet partner, and together they toured across the United States as Graham Parsons and the Fallen Angels from February-March 1973. Before recording, Graham and Emmylou would play a preliminary four-show mini-tour as the headline act in June 1973 Warner Brothers' Country Rock Package with the new Kentucky Colonels and Country Gazette. A shared backing band included former Bird's lead guitarist and Kentucky Colonel Clarence White. On July 14, 1973, tragedy would strike in Graham's life again when his former bandmate, Clarence, was killed by a drunk driver in Palmsdale, California, while loading equipment in his car for a concert with the new Kentucky Colonels. Graham was emotionally devastated, and little did he know, just two months later, he would also take his final bow. The sessions for Grievous Angel with Emmylou Harris took place at Wally Heider's Studio 4 in Hollywood, with Parsons producing. By this time, he was deep into drugs and alcohol, but his creativity flourished. The album included two fan favorites, In My Hour of Darkness, and Will Sweep Out the Ashes in the Morning. Lyrics, which may have described his undeniable chemistry with duo partner, Emmylou Harris. The lyrics go, We know it's wrong to let this fire burn between us. We've got to stop this wild desire in you and in me. So we'll let the flame burn once again until the thrill is gone. Then we'll sweep out the ashes in the morning. Over the years, there has been much speculation as to the nature of Emmylou's relationship with Graham. His friend and road manager Phil Kaufman once said, If Graham hadn't been married to Gretchen, then something definitely would have happened between the two of them. In Emmylou Harris's interview with The Independent in 2011, 
She admits to the incredible chemistry she once shared with a cosmic cowboy and said they were probably headed in a romantic direction, but the timing was terrible. They had the elements of being a couple through a musical relationship that became very intense. She tried to keep her distance because Graham was married. Toward the end, before Graham died, she couldn't really deny her feelings anymore. She knew she was falling in love with her musical partner and assumed that something would eventually happen, never thinking the two would never get the chance. When she got the call that he had died, she was shocked and heartbroken. Emmylou stated she didn't believe anyone would have been interested in her if it weren't for Graham. He instilled a deep love of country music in her, and how, even after his death, he had continued to shape her professional life. Sadly, her love was unable to stop him from driving down his destructive path. As Graham continued to chase his musical dreams, his relationship with Nancy fell apart. He battled his fear of fatherhood, but felt a burden of responsibility, so he proposed to his girlfriend, and she accepted. However, doubt creeped in about the decisions he made over the previous year. His troubles with Lee Hazelwood and his quick exit from the sub-ban had come back to haunt him, karmic retribution in action. In Graham's memoir, Grievous Angel, it reveals that he started spending less time with Nancy and used any excuse to get away from home. In the search of truth, Graham, a Scorpio, became loosely enamored with Eastern thought. He had studied Buddhism and Hinduism through his long talks with Reverend James Thomas, a close friend, at Harvard, and wanted to explore Eastern mysticism and metaphysics. Graham spiritually understood the concept of you shall reap what you have sown. He had become self-absorbed and treated the mother of his child unkindly. But while he was smart enough to recognize his lack of honesty with himself, Graham did his best to avoid looking too closely, afraid to see things as they truly were. Had he been more gracious in his dealings with Hazelwood, less contemptuous, things might have turned out differently, instead of becoming a more troubled soul. However, his love story with Nancy would not have a happy ending. Like most karmic relationships, they're the type of soulmate relationships that no one wants, but everyone has. They are designed to heal past life lessons and pain. Graham would soon split with Nancy and later pen one of the saddest love songs ever written, Thousand Dollar Wedding. It tells the tale of a man being left at the altar by his sweetheart The lyrics go, A $1,000 wedding, supposed to be held the other day, and with all the invitations sent, the young bride went away. When the groom saw people passing notes, I hate to tell you how he acted when the news arrived. He took some friends out drinking, and it's lucky they survived. Like most Scorpio men, love for Graham was intense, heartbreaking, and all-consuming. It was complicated by his moon in Pisces that made him an intuitive soul who would draw women in with his dreamy-like qualities only to push them away when they got too close. After splitting with Nancy, he joined the Rolling Stones on their 1971 UK tour in hopes of getting signed to their newly formed Rolling Stones Records. 
where he hoped to record a duo album with Keith Richards. By this time, he had fallen in love again with a much younger blonde beauty, Gretchen Burrell. However, their frequent drunken quarrels upset Richard's girlfriend, Anita, and she demanded the couple to leave the tour. When they returned, Graham asked Gretchen to be his wife, and they married shortly after at his family's Louisiana estate. However, his newfound happiness would be short-lived. After his Fallen Angels tour, Graham and Gretchen vacationed with Bob and Bonnie Parsons on a sailboat in the West Indies in the hopes of patching up their shaky marriage. Bob Parsons, who hoped to clear his conscience, dropped the bombshell on his son. He admitted when Graham's mom was hospitalized because of her drinking problem, he smuggled in little bottles of airline vodka into her room. Bob admitted mixing her one last martini, which apparently contributed to her death immediately thereafter. Gretchen would later claim that Graham was never the same, ever, after hearing his adoptive father's confession. Soon after, he began having strange seizures, which his wife attributed to this trauma. Sometimes his speech slowed, other times he passed out. He spent several days at a hospital in Burbank after one episode, after which he seemed to improve. The trouble did not end there for Graham, and he almost went out in a cloud of smoke after returning home from his family vacation, when his home burned down. He and Gretchen escaped with only the clothes on their back, along with a guitar and his prized Jaguar. They lived with her parents for a while, but soon the couple separated. Graham moved in with his road manager, Phil Kaufman, where he lived while Sessions began on his second album for Reprise, and his life would take another chilling turn. Joshua Tree is located 131 miles east of Los Angeles and was named by Mormon settlers who had crossed the Mojave Desert in the mid-1800s. The tree's unusual shape reminded them of the Bible story in which Joshua reaches his hands up to the sky in prayer. The town is a magical place and is a landscape of rustic freedoms, where the songwriter is soothed and bands can play loud across the desert night without the cops showing up. The week before his death, Graham Parsons was in the recording studio completing the finishing touches to his new album. He appeared to be in good health and things had gone well, up to a point. He had recently split with his wife but was in good spirits and trying to put his life back together. Ginny Wynn, a photographer, was quoted as saying in a Rolling Stone interview, he was hardly drinking and not doing dope. He was putting down three songs a night. But then, she said, she sensed a change. All I knew was that something was happening, and I didn't know what. The album was finished, there were a couple things that didn't come off right. Later that evening, encouraged by his road manager, Phil Kaufman, Graham decided to take a weekend trip to Joshua Tree to celebrate the completion of what would be his last recording session. After splitting from his wife, Gretchen, Graham often spent weekends in the desert with his old high school girlfriend, Margaret Fisher, and with his housemate, Phil Kaufman. However, a foreboding lingered in the air before he took that fateful trip. Kaufman would later reveal Graham had told him if he died, he would like his ashes scattered in Joshua Tree Park. Was it an offhand remark? A moment of melancholy? 
or a premonition that his death was near. I believe nothing happens by coincidence or accident. Graham Parsons was an old soul, and in numerology, he had the life path number nine. In this vibration, the person goes through many personal love relationships and experiences, disappointments, and sorrows in their lifetime. It's a karmic number and represents the end of a life cycle. Intuitively, I believe Graham knew the end was near, and he was ready to take one last spiritual ride on the wheel of life. On the weekend of September 15th and 16th, Parsons checked into his favorite motel, Joshua Tree Inn, a quiet hideaway on 29 Palms Highway. He had traveled to the desert with Margaret, his assistant Michael Martin, and Martin's girlfriend, Dale McEnroy. The four friends partied in bars in the nearby town of Yucca Valley on both nights before Parsons' tragic death. On September 18th, it was reported that Martin drove back to Los Angeles to buy some weed. That night, Parsons seemed anxious and insisted Margaret and Dale drink with him, but reportedly they declined because one of them was recovering from hepatitis C. However, that did not discourage the rocker, and he quickly downed six double tequila shots. After they returned to the motel, still wanting to party, Graham bought morphine from an unknown young woman. After being injected by her in room eight, Parsons collapsed. His former girlfriend, Margaret Fisher, desperately tried to revive him by giving him an ice cube suppository and later a cold shower. Instead of walking Graham around the room, she put him to bed and went out to buy coffee in hopes of waking him, leaving Dale McElroy to stand watch. As his breathing became irregular and later ceased, she attempted CPR. Her efforts failed. The frightened girls ran to the motel owner's door and began pounding on the windows. Graham Parsons, they screamed, was unconscious. Frank Barbary, the motel owner, quickly called for an ambulance and then attempted to revive him by mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. The singer was rushed to High Valley Memorial Hospital at nearby Yucca Valley, but was pronounced dead at 12.15 a.m. on September 19, 1973. Afterwards, the story of room number eight and death of Graham Parsons would take an even darker turn. The number eight in the Bible signifies resurrection and regeneration. The number represents a new beginning, but for the charismatic rock star, it led to a less than perfect ending. In fact, what happens next to Graham Parsons' body in the hours after his death is one of the most bizarre in country music history. Just two months before his death, Graham attended the funeral of his former Birds bandmate Clarence White, who had been killed by a drunk driver after a White Brothers concert, and inspired the last song he wrote, In My Hour of Darkness. Shaken by the sudden death of his friend, Graham made a pact with his road manager, Phil Kaufman. The two agreed if either died prematurely, they wanted their body taken out to Joshua Tree and share one last drink with the corpse before burning it in the desert. Little did Graham know that Kaufman would soon get the opportunity to keep his morbid promise. 
Upon the news of Graham's death, and after a night of heavy drinking, Kaufman remembered the deadly pact the two had made earlier that summer. He knew how much Graham disliked his adopted father in Louisiana, and had stated when he died he didn't want any depressing religious shit with family and friends. So Kaufman determined to honor his final wishes and went into action. The following day, Kaufman and his friend Michael arrived in a Cadillac hearse at the LAX airport, impersonating mortuary workers dressed in Sin City jackets and wearing cowboy hats. Under the impression that the two had been hired by Graham Parsons' family, oddly, Western Airlines released the body to them. Kaufman signed the paperwork as Jeremy Nobody, and asked a policeman who had parked behind the hearse to move his cars so they could load the casket. The cop even helped the two men load Graham into the back of the hearse. Afterward, Kaufman, slightly drunk and nervous, drove the hearse into a wall of the hangar. However, the cop didn't say anything, and the two quickly sped away, headed towards the desert. Along the way, the two stopped to purchase five gallons of gasoline and arrived to Joshua Tree just after midnight and drove straight to Cap Rock. After taking Graham out of the back of the hearse, Kaufman told Louder Magazine in an interview, he wanted to say a final goodbye to his friend and opened up the casket. There, the lifeless body of Graham Parsons laid naked, with surgical tape covering where they had done the autopsy. Kaufman stated, he then poured gasoline over his good friend and said, All right, Graham, on your way. He lit the match and threw it onto the gasoline. A loud whoosh sound made its way across the desert night, and Graham's ashes went flying up into the air. The two saw some headlights approaching from across the desert and sped off in the hearse, leaving the burning body of Graham Parsons behind. However, the deadly adventure for Kaufman and Michael did not end there. On the way to L.A., the two, both intoxicated, stopped to sleep on the side of the road. When they woke up, the hearse wouldn't start, and the two had to hike to a mechanic shop to get a tow. After a few repairs, they hit the road, but later became involved in a car pileup after they rear-ended another car. A police officer stopped them and handcuffed them both when several beer cans fell out of the hearse after one of the doors was opened. While the officer confirmed no other drivers were hurt in the accident, Michael slipped his hands out of the cuffs and fled with Kaufman in the hearse. Since the officer didn't take the driver's license of either one, he couldn't identify the two. Late Friday morning, the remains of Graham Parsons' body would be found by a family visiting Joshua Tree National Park. When the Sheriff's Department arrived, they discovered Graham's badly burned body and believed he was cremated in a bizarre desert ritual. Several days later, his shocking death hit the headlines and everyone knew that Kaufman was behind the theft of his body and he was promptly arrested. Later, when Kaufman went to court, all they could charge him with was stealing the casket because the body itself had no intrinsic value and was fined $1,300. Graham's remains would finally be shipped to his family in New Orleans, 
where he was laid to rest at the Garden of Memories. In Kaufman's words, dying was a great career move for Graham. He is now acknowledged as one of the most influential country rock performers of all time, and Room 8 at the Joshua Tree Inn is now a shrine dedicated to his memory. the sense that Graham knew he wouldn't be around very long, but he would leave a lingering impression with his songs and often dark lyrics. Whether he was singing about women, drinking, guilt, heartbreak, or some other loss, you believed it. He blended rock and country into what would be called cosmic American music. His last album, Grievous Angel, was released in January 1974. After his untimely death, Graham's troubled family ties continued to linger. Many believe his adoptive father, Bob Parsons, wanted to have the singer buried in Louisiana for more dubious reasons. There have been some claims that under Louisiana law, Graham Parsons' estate, which included his assets, as well as the remaining Snively fortune from his mother's side, would go on to the nearest living male relative, which was, of course, Bob Parsons. But the law would only apply if Graham had been a resident of Louisiana, and perhaps Bob had hoped that having his adopted son buried there could help to prove his legal residency. However, his attempt to inherit Graham's estate was rejected by the court, and he would die about a year later. The money instead went to his estranged wife Gretchen, his daughter Polly, his sister Avis, and their half-sister Diane. Over the years, his musical influence continues to grow. Without the pioneering work of Graham Parsons, the music of Poco, Pure Prairie League, or the Eagles might have not been possible. He was a big influence on the likes of the Rolling Stones and Elvis Costello, Dave Edmonds, and R.E.M. Another strange twist to Graham's life story is his two degrees of separation from Charles Manson via Phil Kaufman. His road manager, who stole his body and ceremoniously set it on fire in the desert, had spent time in prison with Manson while they were inmates in Terminal Island Prison. Months after Manson's release, by which time he had accepted the first four of his female devotees, Manson went to see Gary Stromberg. On the strength of the recommendation from Kaufman, the producer authorized a studio recording session. According to Kaufman, he has had sex with more serial killers than anyone else in show business. When Manson found out that he would not be able to turn him into a follower, they became estranged. For Graham's daughter, born in 1967, her life has been a poetic journey of struggle and redemption. She was only five years old when she heard the news of her father's death at the Joshua Tree Inn on TV. Polly would later say in an Austin Chronicle interview, that her mother crumbled after her father's death, leaving her in the care of friends. Her mom never married, but got sober when she was 14. Polly would grow up in a Santa Barbara commune and then later with friends until she graduated from high school. By 16, she became horribly addicted to cocaine and alcohol and didn't dare mention who her father was until she turned 25. 
She stated she was terrified that her outcome would be written in stone if she acknowledged the fact that her family lineage couldn't manage to stay on the planet for very long. In 2001, Graham's musical rights were returned 28 years later after his death, which she now shares with his widow Gretchen. Polly realized she had a responsibility to keep her father's memory alive, and she made a pilgrimage back to Winter Haven to visit his old haunts and meet members of his family. She was quoted as saying, I love how unapologetic he was about his vision and his passion and his truth. I love that he had so much conviction. It's almost like he was a messenger. It was almost evangelical what he did, and he did what he needed to do, and he took off when he needed to take off. Today, the father she hardly knew has left a legacy that's taken his only child a lifetime to decipher. However, it does end with a happy story on the other side of addiction. Graham's daughter now owns Hickory Wind Ranch in Austin, an upscale sober living environment for people in recovery from alcohol and drugs. She also continues to take trips to Joshua Tree by herself to reconnect with her father's music and spirit where she feels his presence on a daily basis. She tells the Austin Chronicle, There's a line he wrote, Calling me home, hickory wind. It talks about where we go when we're lonesome. I miss him profoundly. Deep down, I believe the thread between life and death is very, very thin. And I don't think he's farther than my prayers. I really feel that he's as close as I need him to be, emotionally and spiritually. In one of Graham Parsons' last interviews, he was quoted as saying, Death is a warm cloak, an old friend. And just a few weeks later, after drinking a bottle of blues, he would take his final bow. In the years after his death, curiosity seekers and fans continued to flock to the desert on a weekly basis to pay tribute to the country crooner at one of Graham's favourite places in the world, Joshua Tree Inn. It's where his life suddenly stopped, and the legend began. But as guests of room number eight will tell you, it's not a place of regret. In the room, his music plays softly in the background, gently rocking the memories and the emotional imprint he left behind. And inside the room hangs a big mirror that's been there since he died, in which Graham saw himself for the last time. Outside room eight stands a small memorial for Graham Parsons. It includes a guitar-shaped stone that is surrounded by prayer offerings, candles, incense, guitar picks, sage, and even a few beer bottles left by fans who came to pay homage to their fallen country star. And on the table, you'll find a guest book where those who have stayed in room eight can write a note or share a memory. One beautifully reads, It's good to be back in room eight. Five years ago, I almost died here. You kept me company in the early morning hours while I recovered and watched the sunrise and listened to the morning doves. In the sweet desert night, Graham Parsons, the Grievous Angels legend, lives on.
Death by Misadventure was produced by Cosmic Media and written by me, JC Nova. Our supernatural team of co-hosts includes the talented Eduardo Fahey in London, Tom Dre, our master numerologist and paranormal investigator in L.A., Paul Robinson, magi and musician in Marin, and myself, I'm a psychic astrologer and paranormal investigator in Los Angeles and San Francisco. This episode was recorded at Robin Sound Studios in Marin, California, and also at Union Recording Studio in West Hollywood, California. Kudos to sound engineers Paul Robinson and Noah Shanklin. A special thanks to audio producer Christopher Lang in Tucson, who brings each episode to life, and Paulina from Upper Planet in London. She's responsible for the super cool design of our official website. She's also the designer for one of our favorite true crime podcasts, Case File. Please like and follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash death by misadventure podcast. Each episode is available for download direct via our website at deathbymisadventure.co.uk and also at iTunes, Google Play, CastBox, Spotify, Podbean, TuneIn, Radio Public, and Stitcher. Last but not least, our podcast is hosted by Libsyn. I'm JC Nova, and this has been Death by Misadventure. Thanks for listening. <laughs>